0: Well I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the 13th chapter of Mark's Gospel and I'm going to take you into that passage in just a moment or two. Um, As I mentioned to you last week we are planning to recommence our Sunday gatherings on a fairly small scale to begin with. This live stream will continue to be the main vehicle through which we engage in worship as a church providing that we can uh, continue to trust our computer to get things started. But we are going to continue doing the live stream at 11 o'clock every Sunday and then Sunday afternoons at 3 o'clock and 5.30 we will also have a gathering which will take place um, uh, by invitation because it will be based around particular life groups in the life of the church but that will be at our normal venue at the London Nautical School. So do look for the email in your inbox which will invite you to a particular service and please do RSVP as well. We are so excited to be together again. I just feel that... um, a church has to be, um, has to experience its community life in order for it to, to exist as a body. In order for it to experience the life of God within its fellowship, and so I'm so excited for this to be happening. And I feel that even if, in God's sovereignty, we've been dispersed for a time, I'm glad that we can be together again. Even if it will be in a slightly different, um, it will be a different experience from normal. Like we won't be able to sing together necessarily, and we'll have to um, abide by certain rules. But It's going to be good. I want to read to you from uh, Mark chapter 13. To begin with, I'm just going to read the first eight verses, but we're actually going to deal with a large section of this chapter, almost all of it. But I I feel like it would be helpful just to read a few verses to give us a flavour for what is going on. And recall that this is the, the week before Jesus is crucified. And that he spent a good deal of time in Jerusalem, the city in which he will be crucified. He spent time this week engaging with various opponents, people who've questioned and, and, uh, and put him on the spot and grilled him with regard to his teaching and uh, the things which Jesus um, was, was saying. And uh, we're really reaching a bit of an escalation at this point where things are. there's going to be a breakdown between his relationship and the, the Jewish people in that city. And it will culminate in his crucifixion. And so on this particular day, the end of the day, after he's been teaching in the temple courts and, and uh, spending time with his disciples, it says this. that, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, what will become obvious to you in reading even just the few verses that we've read so far is that what we're handling here is a passage of Scripture that is concerned with um, what the theologians call eschatology, which means the end times. It means um, the way the Bible speaks about the future and the the decades and centuries and even millennia that would follow the um, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're dealing with um, what broadly comes under that category of eschatology. Now, there are basically two extremes when it comes to this particular um, aspect of Christian teaching and doctrine because obviously Christian teaching and doctrine can be divided into different categories. You have teaching about God, you have teaching about our salvation, you have teaching about the church but when it comes to teaching about what is broadly called eschatology you have two extremes. On the one hand you have um, those Christians who have developed a kind of morbid fascination with these particular themes, so that these themes become the most important thing that defines the way uh, the church thinks and conducts itself. And um, a, a fascination with end times prophecy, such that you could kind of map out um, the way that the, the history of the world is and will be unfolding. And you know, this came to a particular peak, I think, in the last century, when you know we were in the midst of a Cold War and um, people were seeing... Uh, they were reading their Bibles and they were reading the newspapers. On the other hand, and they were comparing and saying, "Surely, surely, what Jesus is talking about, or what is pro- prophesied in various places in the New Testament, surely all of this is unfolding before us." And you had, you know, the the communist states under the Soviet rule in Russia, and you had um, the ways in which the world was on the brink. It seemed of destruction with the potential of nuclear war and all that. That in, um, could have meant for us. And I remember as a child, even though that era largely came to an end during my childhood, I remember as a child, though, people still having this kind of obsession with eschatology, so that you know, people would try and convince you that um, that that the use of barcodes, for example, on on goods that are bought and sold, was there in the Book of Revelation. It's a symbol of the beast, and it's a symbol of the way things are, the way the world is being corrupted by the powers of of the dark uh, forces at work, and so on. And you know, even today, there are there are certainly a pocket of Christians who are absolutely um, fixated on these matters, so that they're reading their Bible and they're saying, okay, this is where this is where the President Trump fits in and this is where China fits in and this is where uh, the pandemic fits in and so on. There's this kind of morbid fascination and basically... The more that Christians engage in this kind of speculative way of reading history and of reading the Bible, the more they tend towards the lunatic end uh, fringe of the church. And it begins, gets a bit crazier and crazier until eventually we find ourselves dug into bunkers with uh, tins of baked beans st- stacked up to the ceiling because we're waiting for Armageddon. And that's certainly one way that Christians have interpreted things. And then at the other end, you have effectively the opposite response, which is a kind of abandonment of any effort to understand what's really going on in passages like this one. So that Christians have have kind of retreated, I think, into a kind of hopeless, well, we can't possibly know um, what these strange verses depict. And so we really just make our faith about me and my own fulfillment and my own happiness. And so Christianity ends up being internalized, becomes a private way of Uh, understanding faith and religion. And I'm no longer interested at this point in God's great plan in history of what's unfolded across the millennia and what, what is awaiting me. I'm just interested in how I can be happy How I can have peace? How I can, um, you know, the practical elements of the Christian faith, and how it can make my day feel better, essentially. And so we 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 vacillate between these two extremes. And you know, the worst end of that, there's no longer really any talk about heaven. There's no longer any talk about eternity. There's no longer any urgency in mission, because if Christianity is just is just a kind of a quick fix for having better mental health or more peace or any of these kinds of things. And all that you know, big stuff isn't really of concern to the individual Christian. And we find ourselves vacillating between these two very different ways of expressing the Christian faith. And you ask me, well, where are we today? I think if we'd gone back 60, 70 years, um, uh, what we're looking at there is the Christian faith very much fixed on the kind of eschatology themes, so that you know any Christian worth their salt in the middle of the 20th century could have given you a chart that mapped out the end times and, uh, d- and depicted how things are going to unfold before the return of Christ. And we have largely moved in the other direction. I think for the most part, people don't even talk about the return of Christ anymore, or they don't talk about um, any of these themes in particular, because we've kind of given up and we said, oh, well, we don't really understand this stuff. and. If if that's the case, then I think the urgency with which we need to look at a passage like this is even more exaggerated. We need to understand what's going on here, what Jesus is talking about. And really, as a preface to everything I'm going to say today, I want you to just understand why I think this is so vital. Because of all the chapters in Mark's Gospel, there is no question in my mind but that this is the most difficult to uh, understand. So that if you're just reading the Gospel in your private devotions, um, you're going to find it most difficult to read this particular chapter and to understand what's happening. And I, my own philosophy in preaching, and I think this is vital for you to understand because we've taken a good deal of time to work through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse or section by section. My philosophy of preaching and of wrestling with even difficult passages like this, I would describe as a kind of nose to tail preaching. And uh, I take that phrase back in the, the, the mid 90s, there was a restaurant established in East London uh, called St. John by a man called Fergus Henderson. And he he, he, he he established this restaurant on the principle of nose-to-tail eating. And basically, what he observed, of course, was that most modern cooking um, w- it involves going to the supermarket and selecting the very best cuts of meat off the sh- supermarket shelves. So we'll we'll choose a piece of um, sirloin or a piece of fillet or a prime rib, and it's all pre-packaged and sanitized. And really, it has bears no resemblance to the animal from which it came. And most of the animal is not there on our supermarket shelves. I mean, unless you're going through w- uh, one of the markets in London, you're not going to encounter you know the head of the animal or the hooves of the animal, or the ears of the animal or any other parts of the animal if you're going to Sainsbury's or Tesco's or any of these places. And so what we're we're looking at here is the result of a consumeristic age, a sanitized age, in which everything is just neatly packaged for us for easy consumption. And I think to a huge extent this is what's become true of the church, in the Western world at least, that to a large extent the consumerism of our age, the sanitization of our age, means that we are only interested in carefully pre-packaged portions of Christian truth which are largely practical and which have an immediate payoff for our day-to-day lives. And of course we don't want any hint of blood and we don't want any hint of offal and we don't want any hint of the animal. We just want something which I can instantly digest and take away with me. And I believe that the Christian church is basically becomes... Somewhat malnourished through that approach, and it certainly indulges our worst tendencies to get fat and obese, spiritually speaking, and to sit around on our sofas and do nothing. And uh, really, what's needed is a kind of a a recaptured emphasis upon reading the whole of Scripture and reading whole books of the Bible, so that when we read a book like the Gospel of Mark, we're not just cherry picking the best bits, we're not just pulling out the fillet and the, the ribeye and, and, and presenting that to you as you know, the easy stuff to digest and consume. We're, we're looking into the harder parts with the, this basic conviction. That the church only develops strength and sinew and uh, only develops backbone when it really understands the full breadth of Christian teaching and when we have a much more filled out uh, understanding of our faith, when our imagination is formed by the Bible and we begin to see the world through the lens that Christ provided rather than through the lenses which the world is constantly imposing on us. And it seems to me that that is impossible to, to experience that shift of what Paul calls the renewal of your mind unless you know the Scriptures and unless they're open to you, page by page. And so I make no apology for the challenge of looking at a passage like this. I think it's absolutely vital for us. My task then today is partly to show you how I think these verses have been massively misunderstood and misread by Christians. And therefore, to open it up to you as we read through this passage, my main task is to demystify and to explain what actually is a fairly straightforward passage when it's understood rightly. And then toward the end I want to help you to see the takeaway, the application, the ways in which this is so vital for us in our present moment. And so we're going to spend a good deal of our time just reading through and commenting on this chunk of Mark's gospel which will be different to my normal format but I I think you'll appreciate the reason for doing so as we go through it. Let me read again then the first two verses and we'll get going it says, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They were exiting the temple grounds and the disciples kind of pivot round and take in the view and they are captivated by the view of the temple. Now, this particular temple that was standing in Jerusalem in the first century it was called the Second Temple. The First Temple had been built by Solomon, you know, was, uh, eight, about eight to nine hundred years before Jesus, and it was one of the Seven Wonders of the World. But that temple had met its tragic end with the conquest by the Babylonians and uh, the, the the exile that that took place afterwards. And um, what? resulted was a a tragedy in terms of the the religious life of the the nation had depleted until um, until the return of the exiles. And they began to rebuild the temple at about five centuries before Jesus. and Initially, this was a relatively modest structure. And uh, so modest, in fact, that some of the men who were alive, who remembered something of the old structure, began to weep at uh, how pitiful this new temple was. But then Herod, uh, the king, the kind of puppet king of Israel, began working on this particular incarnation of the temple. And it was a, basically a massive vanity project. The stones were enormous, some of them almost the size of buses. And uh, he, he, he developed and, and uh, rebuilt this temple into its, to the kind of glory that he felt would bes- basically reflect well on him. And people were happy about that. They wanted the temple to be beautiful. And so these men take in this extraordinary view. I, the closest I've ever came to this, uh, come to this experience was visiting Barcelona. And you'll know that Barcelona has quite a lot of architecture that was developed by Gaudi. And one of the things, one of the, the kind of pièce de résistance is the Sagrada Familia. Now I had never seen an image of this cathedral. I don't know how I'd gone through my life never having seen it. And this thing had been Uh, the construction began in 1882 and it's still being built to this day. And so as I came out of the underground station with my wife, I kind of lifted up my eyes and it took me by surprise. I didn't really know what we were going to see that day. And it actually took me aback. I was amazed at the structure of this enormous cathedral and the way in which it reflected partly the glory of man in our ability to create extraordinary things, but then also the glory of God. This is a structure built for the worship of God. And this is the experience that the disciples were having on this particular day and then Jesus says it's all going to be utterly flattened and destroyed. Now, the thing that you have to hold in your minds is that this is the fundamental purpose of this entire chapter. That Jesus is predicting the fall, the tragic end of the city, its glory, and particularly of the temple itself. You see... About 40 years after Jesus said these words the Jewish war had been raging as the Jews had rebelled against Rome and towards the end of the 60s in the first century this war heated up until AD 70 when the Romans utterly flattened the city and this Jewish war becomes a defining moment in the life of the nation and also has a massive impact upon the life of the church. Thinking negatively it meant that the nation of Israel was obliterated. And of course, until the 20th century, that was the state for the Jewish people. They became a diaspora, a scattered people. From AD 70, they never had anything like a state to enjoy protection and security. For all these centuries, That they were scattered across North Africa and through Europe, and then further afield into places like Russia and eventually into the United States and beyond. It meant no nation, It meant no observance of the law. You ever ask yourself the question, why is it that Jews today don't follow the law as it pertains to sacrificial system? The answer is not because they they haven't wanted to. It's because they haven't had a temple in which to follow out this sacrificial system. And so instead of giving sacrifices in the temple, the rabbis in the centuries after this developed a system of prayers to replace the sacrifices and so Judaism took on a completely different shape to the shape which it knew in the era when Jesus was alive everything for Judaism changed then but that's to think of it this way also the change took place within the church the church had been based around Jerusalem but from this era onwards it became a global phenomenon and this is the thing that we need to understand so what Jesus is talking about here He's speaking about AD 30, AD 70, the temple will be destroyed. He's talking about an epoch change that would take place then in the first century, which is actually, thinking biblically, the most important change in history that took place in, in the history of the world. And th- th- this is why we have to understand what's going on here. When I was a boy, um, I was born in the early 80s and went to primary school in the late 80s and early 90s. And... Uh, somewhere around the, the early 90s one of my friends at primary school called Eric came home from uh, Germany from a holiday in Germany he brought into school a little uh, clear plastic box and inside that box was a little piece of concrete with some um, some kind of ink on it and this piece of concrete was a piece of the Berlin Wall now as a child I didn't fully appreciate uh, just how important this artifact was I had no understanding really of what had taken place in history But of course, this wall and the reason why people are interested in pieces of this wall is because the downfall of the Berlin Wall was more of a symbolic thing than anything else that took place in the 20th century in terms of the shift of epochs. We had all the tension of the Cold War and the Iron Curtain that had fallen across Europe, dividing Eastern Europe and the Soviet um, states from Western Europe and the capitalist and free world. And the Berlin Wall was the symbol of that because Berlin itself was divided into two. There was communist East Berlin and there was West Berlin which was governed by the the, um, the US and Britain and so on. And this wall divided even families, German families. It divided friends, it divided people who knew each other and they'd been able to travel back and forth until the wall was put up. But when the wall was put up it marked the, the descent really of this curtain and the way in which the whole of Europe had changed face. And then the 1980s began to see something of a a warming of a relationship between the East and the West until it culminated in 1989 with the pulling down of this wall in Berlin and the freeing of the Deutsche Democratic Republic from communist rule and the uniting of Germany which was in many ways just a symbol of what was happening in the whole world as the Soviet era more or less drew to an end. And so the wall, even though it was just a wall, it stood for, for a change of epochs. It, it stood for a change at a global level, at a cosmic level of what was taking place in human history. And this is what Jesus is talking about here when he's, he, de- he describes how not one stone will be left upon another. Now I want to read on then. It says in verse 3, that as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. The disciples evidently are very perplexed by the things that Jesus is saying when he's talking about the fall of this temple. And so they ask him this question of when and how will we know that this is about to take place? And I think it's very hard for us to put ourselves in their shoes, to understand the degree of of, of confusion that they must have felt on that day. It's like if I was to say to you that in 40 years... Uh, London will be submerged underwater, global warming will have so accelerated, the ice caps will have melted that the city as we know it will no longer exist. Maybe uh, Hampstead will be like an island and Barnet will be like a couple of islands in what was once Greater London. But everything you know and love, the Thames barrier will have been annihilated and everything you know and love about the city will have vanished forever. And that would be very difficult for you to absorb. It would mean a change of the world as we know it. It would mean a change of our own worlds but a change on on a scale that we cannot really grasp or comprehend. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about such a shift that the disciples can't fully take it in. And then Jesus begins to answer that question of the kinds of things that are going to happen. He talks about these wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famine. Many Christians have read this and they've seen the language of the end coming and they thought surely all of this is talking about the very end of history when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to claim his kingdom. But of course that's a misreading. Jesus is answering the question about the the temple and the fall of the temple and what he's describing here are the events that took place in that 40 years between when he said this and when the temple fell, that generational shift that took place and there were wars. There were false messiahs to begin with. We know this even in the book of Acts. There's a man called Theodos who's mentioned in Acts chapter 5 who was a false messiah. We know that there were wars. Herod Antipas went to war against the Nabataean king in the 30s. And then we know that there were earthquakes. There was a major earthquake in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, and I think in, which year? in the year 61. In Pompeii there was an earthquake which partially flattened the city in 62, which was... Uh, you know, it predates the destruction of Pompeii when the Vesuvius erupted, and then there was an earthquake in Jerusalem itself in AD 67. And of course, there was famines all through the 40s. The Roman Empire experienced famine, but particularly in the year 46, under the reign of Claudius, there was an immense famine which which uh, which affected great vast portions of the Roman Empire. And it's mentioned, of course, in the history book, which is the Book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church. So all these things they. They seem apocalyptic. It seems like stuff which you know, would cause you to, to look at, for the signs of the end in your newspapers. But really this was stuff that was happening within the lifetimes of these men. All of these things would take place and all of them would, would tell them that what Jesus was predicting was coming to pass. Let's read on from verse 9. He says, But be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now we need to ask ourselves the question what is the main reason for this transition that's about to take place in history? This thing that Jesus is 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 occupying his mind in which he's trying to communicate to the disciples of this great change that's about to happen in the life of the nation. What is the fundamental thing that's going on here? And the answer is the faith, the gospel, true religion, the worship of Yahweh is going to be liberated from its geographical base around Jerusalem and the worship which was centred around the temple and it's going to be freed and unleashed to become a worldwide mission and this is what Jesus makes explicit in verse 10 when he says the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations the very thing which began to take place in the book of Acts when the gospel was first preached in Jerusalem and it says in Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth as the apostles were sent out by the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel into the nations this is the great shift that would take place from being based in Jerusalem to being worldwide what Jesus needs to understand, his disciples, to understand about this shift as it's about to take place within their own lifetimes is that this is both bad news and good news. The bad news is that the favour that they're going to experience in Jerusalem as people are going to start to believe in Jesus shortly after his resurrection... And we know this from the early chapters of the book of Acts that many thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem became believers of Jesus, followers of the way as it was said then. There were 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. There was another. It grew to 5,000 plus within a couple of chapters. So the Jerusalem church was lively and, and vibrant and re- experiencing the reviving power of God and throbbing with life. And it's all centred there in Jerusalem. But this was just the honeymoon period. Because what would happen was that the, the opposition to the gospel would begin to set in. First in Jerusalem and then it would cause the Christian church to be scattered. And everywhere they go they would preach about this Saviour who has died for our sins and been raised from the dead and, and therefore confirmed to be the Son of God. But everywhere they go they would experience what Jesus is describing here. That they'd be beaten. That they'd be hauled before rulers and put on trial that they would experience the betrayal by their own family members as as children turn on siblings and parents on children and so on so that even your own family you can't trust because to be a follower of Jesus is to endanger your own life. So the bad news for the church was that even if they would experience momentary joy of people becoming followers of Jesus en masse in Jerusalem, all of that would come to an end. And the normal situation of the church would become persecution, would become adversity, would become the advance of the gospel against the enemy forces so that constantly they are buffeted and prevented from uh, experiencing the full liberty of what it means to be free under Christ. The good news is Jesus is telling them, this is all part of God's plan and I'm with you. Be on your guard, he says. He says the Holy Spirit is going to give you the words you need when you're hauled before rulers and put on trial before judges. He says the one who endures to the end will be saved. The Lord Jesus is, is is preparing them for the changes which would mark the era of the Messiah. And the way that the Christian church needs to grow sinews and strength and develop fortitude in the face of resistance and understand that its basic calling is to preach the gospel in the face of adversity. Jesus is preparing them for this is to be the new normal. It's no longer going to be the situation where the whole nation basically agrees on what truth is and wants to worship together. No, no, you're going to become a minority. You're going to be a people scattered all over the world, separated from one another and experiencing the hostility of the nations. For in those days there will be such tribulation, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look here, here's the Christ, or look there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus is talking about the tragedy that would befall the nation. The Jewish war kicked off in about AD 67 when some Jewish zealots decided to make war against Rome and to try and bring about the freedom of the Jewish people. And Rome brought the wrath of all its power down upon the nation. There's a Jewish historian called Josephus. Uh, He was not a Christian and he wrote about many things of this era, but one of them he wrote about was the Jewish war. And he says this, he said, Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot. No ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Josephus is saying Jerusalem was so pulverized, so battered, so destroyed by Rome that it no longer even looked like a city. It just looked like a pile of rubble. This is exactly what Jesus is predicting here. The tragedy of war, the pain. And he uses exaggerated language. I can grant that when he talks about that no human being would, would be spared unless God had cut short the days. He's speaking in hyperbole, speaking in exaggeration, but he's speaking about the, the depth of the tragedy that would fall upon this nation. It's said that something like a million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans, which was a huge percentage of the population of the nation at the time. And we are not, we're not talking about something which was just a small event in history we're talking about something which changed the trajectory of the Jewish people forever and which was a great tragedy for these men who themselves were Jews this is their families this is their own nation this is their people being battered and bruised and bloodied by Rome now I know that some of you will have read this and you will be alerted to some of the language here that makes you think well surely, surely Jesus is talking about something else it, says, it opens here and says, when you see the abomination of desolation, Christians have engaged with all kinds of speculation about this. And they said, well, it's about something that's going to happen at the end of time. But you have to understand the context in which Jesus was speaking. His disciples knew exactly what he was talking about when he used this expression. The expression first occurs in the book of Daniel, which is five centuries old at this point speaking prophetically. And Daniel speaks about the abomination of desolation, a great sacrilegious thing that would take place in the temple. And about 200 years before Jesus, in the year 167 BC, a a Greek king called Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, came into Jerusalem and he prevented the sacrifices from taking place in the temple and he ordered for a pig to be slaughtered on the altar. And you know that the Jewish people viewed pigs as unclean and he asked for this sow to be slaughtered on the altar and it kicks off the Maccabean revolt the Jewish revolt which led to Jewish freedom and actually the freedom of the Jews for the longest period they'd enjoyed for centuries when they were, they were liberated from the rule of these Greek overlords until of course the Romans rolled in so when Jesus uses this expression to talk about the abomination of desolation the disciples know exactly what he's talking about He's talking about the way in which the temple experienced being defiled and the way in which um, the Jewish people were so, um, became so angered by this. And in the years that followed after Christ, a number of things took place which resembled that event. Caligula asked for his own statue, a statue to be put up in the temple in the 40s. It never happened, but there was an outcry against it. And then in the, in, the, in the 60s of the first century, uh, some Jewish zealots ran o- overtook the temple and got rid of the priesthood and set themselves up as rulers of the temple, which was utter sacrilege in terms of their behaviour. And then it culminated in the Romans conquering the temple. The Roman soldiers putting up their standards. You remember the poles on which the eagle symbol is is placed and beginning to offer sacrifices to their own Roman standard in the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. When Jesus is speaking here about what would take place, he's talking about horrors that can barely be imagined within the Jewish mind at the time of the way in which their pride and joy, their worship of the living God would be so abased and so abused and will culminate in all this tragedy of death. He's speaking about the war that would take place forty years after. In verse twenty-four, it says, "But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory." And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now if anything has confused people about what Jesus is talking about here, it's these verses. Because what Jesus seems to be speaking about in our literalist modern way of reading is that the sun itself will come to an end and the moon will no longer shine and that the stars will begin to fall from the sky. And Christians have read this and they've read it literally. And they've read it in that kind of ignorant way in which we, we don't quite understand the language and the tenor and the, the literature of Scripture. And we've been very, very confused by these passages. But again, we don't need to be confused. We know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. When Jesus talks about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light and the stars from heaven falling, he's quoting from the Old Testament. There are many passages, actually, that use this kind of language. But I'll give you one example. In Isaiah 13, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And when Isaiah wrote that, he was prophesying not the destruction of the created order as we know it, but the fall of the empire of Babylon. And in the same language he uses later, for the fall of the Emperor, empire of Edom. So all this language is what we would describe in, in our modern tongue as earth-shattering events. We speak about that to, to, to indicate the way in which sometimes when empires rise and fall, there are these cosmic things that are taking place. Great events in world history, which is difficult to give voice to. It's difficult to find language which fully captures what's taking place. And this is the kind of language that's used here. Babylon falling, Edom falling. But the savage irony, as one commentator puts it, of what's happening here is that Jesus isn't talking about these enemy nations of Babylonians and the Edomites. He's talking about God's own people. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about the temple. And he's saying that God's anger and God's wrath will fall upon them. Similarly, when he says that they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, he's not talking about his second coming, which is a certain event in future. He's rather using the language of the book of Daniel. Now I know I'm testing you by all this um, explanation, but bear with me. Listen carefully. In the book of Daniel chapter 7, it says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. This is where the phrase comes from, the son of man. It's all in the book of Daniel. And it says, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." How are we to understand this? Daniel is prophetically seeing a future event. When this man, this one who he calls the son of man, will be put in such a position of authority at the right hand of the living God, who Daniel calls the ancient of days. That in that place of authority will, his rule will begin to grow and expand to take in all the nations of the world. He'll be given the highest place the name that is above every, every name that at his name every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Daniel seeing that. And what Jesus is therefore describing when he talks about the sun being darkened and so on he's saying Everything about true worship is coming to an end. Everything that you know is coming to an end. The temple will be flattened, but the Son of Man will be put in his place of authority. He's speaking about himself. He's speaking about his own destiny. Sure enough, within days he'll be crucified, but after that, what will happen? He'll be raised from the dead. Then he'll ascend and be at the Father's right hand. From a place of authority he will begin to send out his angels into the world to gather in his saints, which is what Mark says here. When Jesus said, then he will send out the angels. The word angel is, can literally be just translated "the messenger. He's not talking about angelic beings here. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about God's people. I hope you're beginning to, to perceive just how monumental these words of Christ are. I hope you're beginning to understand that what Jesus is talking about is the greatest shift that would take place in the history of the world. I want to read to you these last verses before I draw this to some kind of conclusion. It says in verse 28 that from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You remember that from the perspective of the disciples... This is very difficult for them to comprehend. For us, looking back in history, you're vaguely aware that the temple was destroyed at some point. We kind of shrug it off like it was just something that happened once upon a time. But to them, it meant everything about the world was about to change. Everything about the way they understood their faith was about to change. Everything about the way they understand the purposes of God was about to change. And so these predictions, so hard to believe as they were, Jesus says, listen, this is how you know this is all going to happen. It'll be like trees. When they start. you see the leaves coming out, you know the seasons are changing. He says, when all these things begin to happen, when you see the wars, when you hear the rumours of wars and the earthquakes and the famines and all of these things happening, then you know that change is afoot. And he tells them explicitly everything that he said would happen within a generation. The generation is about 40 years and so it happened that if Almost exactly 40 years later, everything that he predicted here took place. And I remind you, Mark wrote this gospel in around 10 years before Jerusalem fell. Even from the perspective of Mark when he was writing these words, this was all future. None of this had actually been fulfilled. Which means that we need to pause and gasp and understand that what Christ is talking about here is of the utmost importance that symbolized the absolute greatest change that would ever take place in the history of the world. Now I want to ask the question, what does it mean for us? Because I know that we need to understand what the take-home is and I want to suggest a few things. It means first of all, and by the way, the last verses of the chapter we'll come to next time, but they really are talking about the return of Christ at the very end of history. But what we've read so far, the first thing you have to note is that it all vindicates Jesus. It vindicates him, which means it proves him to be right. It proves his identity. It proves who he is. It proves that you can trust him and rely upon him. Now I say that because he's engaging here in prediction, and prophecy. Prediction is a dangerous game because it's a very high stakes game. Because you, none of us can see the future and will either be true, proved right or proved wrong. There's very, I doubt there's anyone among us who could Name, for example, the person who first shot up a flare about the dangers of the millennium bug. And some of you probably don't even know what I'm talking about, but towards the end of the 1990s, as we were anticipating, celebrating the coming of the new millennium, when the clocks would tick from 1999 into 2000, the fear began to grow. What will happen? Will all the computer systems in the world crash because they weren't designed to transition from 1999 into 2000 which to you and I might sound like a small thing but at the time seemed like an enormous thing people were predicting that the planes would fall out of the air that hospital systems would crash and people would die that that banks would no longer function or be able to uh, exercise transactions um, of money and they thought the turmoil that could follow from something as simple as going from 11.59 on 31st of December 1999 to uh, transitioning into the new millennium that something as simple as that could actually bring about um, some pretty massive upheaval in the world but of course all of these fears were proven unfounded. Um, we, we, we crossed a threshold into the millennium and we looked around us and we were all still alive and everything was going on pretty much as normal and there we were in the year 2000 partying like it was 1999 and there were no, no one was really worried and you know to this day, we don't really talk about the millennium bug anymore except to kind of laugh it off. And, and uh, nobody knows the name of the person who made those predictions initially and who started that kind of panic because it didn't prove true. Now, you think about how prediction works. Right now, if I say the word Greta, every one of you knows what I'm referring to and the doom and the the, the, the apocalyptic future that that name kind of evokes. Now, Who knows, in 50 years time or 60 years time, will we still have the word, the name Greta on our lips? Will we still, um, will will, will she have been proven right or proven wrong? And a great deal of her reputation as a human depends upon whether she's right or whether she's wrong. And this is true for Jesus, but even more so. And the stakes are even higher because he's not just talking about events that, that would take place. He's talking about events that would take place in his lifetime and to which he attaches his own identity. He's saying that these events are the marker. These events are the confirmation of my authority, of God's will to bring to an end an old era and to set me in place as the Messiah, the ruler of the whole world. So either he's wrong and we read this and we think, oh, well, Jesus made some false predictions. In which case we can actually call into question everything he said about himself and discard him. But as it turns out, everything he said was true and it all took place. And this is a provocation, it means it's a vindication. There are many such things in the Bible, but this is just one example. And it may be difficult for you to fully grasp in the moment just how the immeasurable importance of this for us as individuals, maybe because. You know, If you're a Christian, you need to grasp the fact that when Christ said these things and he was proven true, this gives us absolute unshakable certainty that he is who he said he was. But maybe you're not a Christian, you've been wrestling with the teachings of Jesus and you've thought of it as spiritual truths that you can kind of take for your day-to-day life. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you have to take me at more levels than that. You have to understand that I'm the Lord of history, that I'm the Lord of your life, that I'm the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father. And the provocation to you my friend is that you in reading a passage like this and having explained to you must understand that Christ Jesus was fully vindicated was fully confirmed to be the son of God in power by the fact that within this 40 years everything he said had come to pass. Let me give you a second take home. I think that it all reveals to us the plan of God. Now Think of it this way. The destruction of God's temple should have meant the end of belief in God as we know it. The end of belief in Yahweh. Because you think about what's happened to all the ancient religions. And I think about the religion of the Greeks and of the Romans. Various other um, local um, religions that existed around the world. And the answer is that when conquerors came in, and destroyed the temples like the temple of zeus flattened and the temple of diana disappeared and the temple of aphrodite and all these temples gone what happened and the answer is nothing happened the gods were proven to be dead gods their temples vanished and they were impotent and unable to wreak revenge on their conquerors so most of us would think well If the temple of the living God, the temple of Yahweh was flattened, then surely that proves beyond doubt that the God that the Jews believed in wasn't real. Until you read a chapter like this and you understand, as Jesus was speaking prophetically of that fall, you read a chapter like this and you begin to understand that everything happened according to the plan of God, that God had a purpose in the destruction of his own temple. And we have to ask the question and wrestle with the question, what is that purpose? What was he revealing? And I've already hinted at this, but I think it's really emphatically obvious when you read the chapter as a whole. That Christ is talking about a time when belief in God will no longer be tied to that particular location, but will be unleashed into the world. Now this is always God's plan. You read the first book of the Bible, you read the book of Genesis, and you come to God's interactions with that man Abraham, who's the father of all who believe. And God's promises to him was, I will bless you and through you all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Which seems like an odd thing to say to a nomad in the desert in Mesopotamia, you know, a couple of millennia before Jesus. You're going to change the world. But the promises of God have proven true. That through Abraham and his progeny, his descendants and the children of Abraham, which we all are by faith when we believe in Christ. The entire face of history has been changed and God's people have been a blessing to all the nations. God always wanted, in other words, for his faith to be a worldwide, global thing. And this is the moment. What Jesus is describing here was the moment when these great shifts would take place in history. Let me give you one final point then. Not only does it vindicate Christ and reveal the mission of God in the world, the final thing I want to say to you, friends is that it shows you your place in the history of what God is doing in this world. It shows you what your mission is, what your purpose is, because it places you into the timeline of what God is doing in history. And I think you can think of it like this. Think of it in terms of death and resurrection. The Bible is full of deaths followed by resurrections, in which God brings one thing to an end in order to start something new. We see it in the early chapters of Genesis when he floods the world in order to end the wickedness of humanity and then starts something new through Noah. And he forms a covenant with Noah in which there are now rules that govern the behaviour of humans. Then we see it in the life of Joseph. There he is, a slave in Egypt, a prisoner in the prison cell. He effectively dies why so that God can resurrect him and bring him to life and put him at Pharaoh's right hand and then save the nations through Joseph in the great famine that would strike then you see it in the life of Moses how God takes this guy from being at the right hand of Pharaoh and then effectively kills him by putting him in the wilderness for 40 years to be a shepherd so that then he can resurrect him back to life and call him out of the wilderness and say okay now's the time you're going to be the deliverer of my people We see it in the life of Jesus himself. How Christ says that unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it won't bear any fruit. But if it dies, it can bear much fruit. And he's talking about himself. He says he's going to have to die. If he carries on living as normal, the result of his life will be inconsequential. But if he dies, his resurrection will be life from the dead to all humankind. That we'll all have an opportunity to be saved. And this is now true of the temple. The temple had to die. The temple had to come to an end. It had to be destroyed. Not primarily because to be seen as a tragedy, but to be seen as the birth of a new hope. You can think of it like this. If the religion that existed at the time of Christ and prior to that had a centripetal force, in other words, the power of pulling people to Jerusalem to come and experience spiritual life that was certainly true at the time it was this kind of attractional holy place and if you wanted to know God you had to make pilgrimage and we find for example the Ethiopian eunuch doing that in the book of Acts traveling to Jerusalem buying himself a scroll of Isaiah seeking to know God that way but everything would change in this 40 year transition period in which the church is born and as a temple is killed and put to death once and for all, the new temple, the people of God is born and a resurrection takes place. God's presence is now no longer located in a city in the Middle East. God's presence is now in his people and his people are everywhere. And so the force is no longer centripetal or pulling to the center, but rather centrifugal of the explosive energy of God's people going into the world. This resurrection would bring life from the dead. Where do you fit in that? I don't know if you noticed, but throughout this chapter are these hints and these suggestions of what God is doing, that God is birthing a new mission. He tells them, be on your guard. He says the Holy Spirit is going to give you the words you need. He says the one who endures to the end will be saved. And he says this, that then he will send out his angels, his messengers, and gather his elect, his chosen people from the four winds, from every corner of the earth, in other words. This is where we live, friends. The end of the age was then, in AD 70. And what happened was we transitioned into a period which the Bible describes as the end times, from AD 70 right up to the present moment. The end times is the time of Christ ruling at the Father's right hand and gathering in the nations. And this time, this period of the life of God's people is marked by urgency. It's marked by movement. It's the very opposite of a temple, a static object, a cold and lifeless object. It's a living, pulsating people full of urgency, full of passion, full of mission, full of direction, full of movement, going into all the world. And that is the era in which you and I live. That is the history for us as God's people right now. And yes, there'll be a final end to it all when the Son of God will return from heaven to come and claim his bride. But until that day, we live in this particular epoch. We live in this era, the era of going. The era of being sent. Remember that the name apostle, the word apostle, the Greek apostolos meant to be sent, a sent one. No longer would God's people be static. No longer would they be sat still in comfort of their own homes in Jerusalem, engaging in the, the ordinary rhythms of worship in that, in that great structure. No, no, no. Everything would change. They would be sent in, into the far flung corners of the earth, the places to which you and I are called to be and to go. And they're to go with this message, they're, they're messengers. And friend, the provocation I want to leave with you is this one. Is this the most important reality of your life? All of us are born and grow up with all kinds of desires, don't we? We have a desire to potentially to get married or a desire to succeed in a particular career or a desire to raise children or a desire to own a beautiful home or all kinds of desires which compete and control the things that we think are important in our lives. And the Bible doesn't dismiss these. Many of these are implanted by God himself within us. Part of the way we're wired, part of the way in which we reflect his image. But the great danger for Christians is that the desires that we have, which are so temporal, so based on this world, so really about building a house next to the temple, that they overshadow the movement of God, the power of God the grace of god the gospel of god the movement of god and what he's doing in this world and the christian is somebody who reads passages like this and begins to reevaluate his life he begins to understand that i'm not here on this earth to dig in and find comfort and not here on this earth to be static and to be stable and to be still and to just sit back and enjoy the beautiful view of the temple i'm here on this earth To be about the mission of Jesus. And Jesus is right there. He has come on the clouds of heaven to be at the Father's right hand, the right hand of the Ancient of Days. And He has instructed you to be about His mission. And this mission will absorb everything in your life. It will take control of every dimension of your life. It will take control of how you think about your money, as we were talking last week. No longer would we give like the widow to the temple structure, we'll give to the mission of God. It will take control of your ambitions. No longer will you be thinking about how you can glorify yourself in this age you 'll be thinking about how you can bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will take control of your friendships. No longer will you think about finding a few like minded people to form your own little clique and to find comfort in this world you 'll be thinking about how you can give and spend your life in love for other people it'll think about it 'll transform how you think about family. You know that your new family won 't be the old biological family who betray you and turn you over to the authorities and, and hate you because of your faith your new family will be the church of the living God this new dynamic community this people of God not bound by a biology but bound by the gospel drawn from every race and tribe and people and language from the face of the earth and brought together under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ I'm telling you friends that this is meant to transform every dimension of your life and we'll know that we're a church that's alive when every individual in our church is fixated on the reality of this commission this purpose this calling that is ours since we live in this age we're not to sit still we're not to get comfortable we're not to sit and and set up a structure and build a new temple to which all people are invited if they want to come or not we're to go plant churches be missionaries I wonder where God will take some of you. You know, it's so hard to know, isn't it? What the calling is that rests on each of you as individuals. But when I consider the hundreds of people that constitute our church, I know that in amongst this group, many of you are going to take this calling seriously and the movements of your life are going to be controlled by the mission of God. You're going to think to yourself, where does God want me? Where does he want me to work? Where does he want me to live? What church does he want me to be a part of or to start? And your whole life and mission is going to be absorbed with this. And you're going to be about preparing yourself. Recognising as you do that the mission of God is the most important thing in the world for Christians. You're going to dig in and start to prepare and to get yourself ready to be useful for him. Friends, this is what this passage is about. Jesus is preparing his disciples for movement. For the scattering for the changing of the face of the earth as the gospel goes out. Let's pray. Let's ask these truths to begin to melt into and transform the way we think. I hope you can begin to see how the Christian imagination has to be shaped by the Bible and not by the latest how-to book or the latest popular trendy message that's going out we need, to be underst- we need to understand history as God controls it I want to pray that we- this is going to shape our-, our minds our imaginations, our hearts Father I want to ask you to forgive us for domesticating you and your purposes reducing you down to a petty deity who's only interested in our well-being only interested in making us comfortable and giving us a happier more peace-filled life we thank you that you love us but we thank you Lord that all of those things are a byproduct of the fundamental thing which is that we are to be oriented around Jesus your son when I look at Jesus I see a saviour who's more like a general in a war room and he's moving his pieces around the board and he is commanding his legions we look at the Lord Jesus Christ and we see him as a conqueror as it says in the book of Revelation the one who will ride on his white stallion with a tattoo down his thigh and a sword in his hand We praise you that Jesus is going about that conquering work and we have been the beneficiaries of that because we've heard your gospel and you've conquered our hearts. But forgive us, Lord, that we then settle down and we forget that, Lord, your calling is loud and clear. The world must hear. We're not here to build a temple a monument to our own glory we're here to be the temple a radical world changing people on the move and I pray Lord that in the days to come that we'll lose a lot of people from our church not because people are leaving for the bad reasons they're upset or they're grumpy with the pastor or they found somewhere with a slightly more appetizing preaching or better music or they just moved uh, for other reasons. Lord, I pray instead that people will be burdened with the call of God, that they'll see our community life as the launch pad. That each of us will wear the title missionary. It's almost like we could print ourselves business cards in which our name It's connected with that title, we're missionaries, we're we're messengers, we're angels of God. And you'll reshape our priorities and our desires to understand that our life is about you, it's about your purposes, it's not about us. I ask for this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.